Well, the title of my message this morning is The Most Dangerous Place to Live in America. The Most Dangerous Place to Live. And some of my friends from Columbia always give me a bad time when I say America because they remind me that the United States is not all of the Americas. So I put in the United States on the slide. You know, there is crime everywhere. You go online and you look at the most dangerous cities in America. Some of the list surprises you. Actually, none of those cities are on the top three. It's crazy where the most violent crimes are. We hear about, and the news covers these school shootings, the tragedy that takes place in these schools. And you'll hear people say that, you know, one of the safest places our children should be is in the school, and yet it's become one of the most dangerous places for our children. My message this morning is one I hate to give, quite frankly. I hate that it's even necessary to give. Because none of those cities are the most dangerous place to live in the United States of America. The most dangerous place to live in the United States of America is a woman's womb. That is the most dangerous place for a living human being to live. Abortion is a difficult issue to talk about. It's almost impossible to find someone that's neutral on the topic. Pollsters tell us it's one of the most divisive issues in the United States. It's an unpopular subject in general in every which way. Most people don't want to talk about it, they don't want to hear about it, and we don't even really want to think about it. However, the seriousness and the reality of what's still taking place in this nation can't be ignored, shouldn't be ignored. Since 1973, and there was lots of abortions before 1973, but 1973 is kind of the target when we look at these things because that was the year that Roe v. Wade was established. Where a woman who was called Jane Roe brought suit and went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court declared that all of the laws that states had regulating abortion were illegal. And basically saying that abortion was a right of the woman. And people have been arguing about it ever since, very heatedly, on both sides. But the reality is, since 1973, according to the CDC, and the CDC's numbers are usually recognized as low, Guttmacher's statistics, and he is a big Planned Parenthood executive, or was, I believe he's dead now. You may have heard of the Guttmacher Institute. Their numbers are probably more realistic because they work with the abortion industry, but the CDC says that since 1973, there has been 60,069,971 abortions in the United States. Over 60 million abortions. What that means is, every day, on average, there's been 3,657 abortions. What that means is, 152 every hour of every day. 
Matter of fact, if you look at that, you can calculate how many abortions are taking place in America just from the time we started at 10 o'clock till the time we finish. Numbers like that demand that we pay attention. And I understand there are probably at least four different groups of people here this morning listening to me. And some of you don't want to hear any of what I've got to say. Maybe most of you. But I believe here we have those who profoundly believe that abortion is morally wrong. Pro-life, if you would. If that's you, I hope you're encouraged and challenged by what I'm going to share this morning. There's possibly another group, and probably the smallest group, who would truly be undecided on what they think about abortion. I hope what I'm going to share today might help you to make a decision. And those, there are undoubtedly some in here who are pro-choice. The pro-life people would rather call it pro-abortion. doesn't matter what you call it. I know there's probably some of us in here that are in that group of people. I want to say that I'm glad you're here today, and I hope you will listen to what I want to share. And even at the end of my message, if you don't agree with me, I still love you. We still love you. And you're welcome at VCC anytime. It's not something that should separate us. But I hope that what I share causes you at least to maybe reevaluate and think. And then there's a fourth group. And when I think of this group, I always get emotional because you're the group I'm most most concerned about today. And that's the group that's had an abortion. And I know some of you in here, we've talked about it. But I know there's more of us in here. Women who have had abortions, men who have been involved in the abortions, I understand and get that, and I care more about what you're going to hear today than anybody else, really. I want you to know that I would never say or do anything intentionally that would hurt you or cause you pain. And I hope that as you listen to what I have to share, by the time we're finished, you are encouraged, more hopeful than you may already be. And I hope you sense the love that the Lord has for you, that we have for you, that I have for you. It used to be when you would talk about abortion, the argument was generally about when does life begin? And I got to confess to you, before I was a Christian, while I was a biology chemistry teacher, I was on the pro-choice side of this argument. I believed that whatever the woman wanted to do was fine. I remember being in college in the dormitory and I'd had some friends who got involved with the decision to have their girlfriends or casual acquaintances go get an abortion because of choices that had already been made. We used to argue, when did life begin? 
quite frankly, nowadays with the technology and the way science has advanced, that argument has very little factual support. You know, people love to talk about Mars for whatever reason, Mars. But can you imagine if they found a single cell living on the planet Mars? What all the headlines would say? There's life on Mars. But yet when we have a baby in the womb, even from the moment of conception, there used to be people would argue that that's not life. But the argument has changed. The development of technology has changed the position of most people. There was a man by the name of Dr. Jerome Lachun. He's no longer alive. He was a professor of fundamental genetics in Paris, France, an expert on genetics. He wrote these words, and this is just a small segment from a long paragraph he wrote that said, life, life has a very long history, but each individual has a very neat beginning. I like that he used the word neat. I can understand that word. A geneticist. It has a very neat beginning. And he goes on and finishes that sentence with these words. The moment of conception, life begins. I'm going to just go quickly through some information that most of you probably are familiar with. They'll be on the screen. At the moment of conception, the baby has its own identity. At the moment of conception, when the egg and the sperm come together, there's a new identity form that has its own genes and its own chromosomes. Everything is in that, what we call a zygote. Everything is there for that child to develop. Everything is already there. Before it even implants in the uterine wall, the baby's sex has already been determined. Is it a boy or is it a girl? And usually that's what I see pregnant people saying. Is it a boy or a girl? They don't say, I wonder if this glob of cells will turn into something of worth or value. Or is it a boy or a girl? 19 days, the eyes begin to form. 24 days, the heart begins beating. 24 days. 30 days. It's only a quarter of an inch long, but the baby already has a brain, eyes, ears, mouth, kidneys, and liver. That big. It's already there. It's already formed. 35 days, the fingers are formed. 40 days, brain waves can be detected and recorded. In the seventh week, the baby begins to move spontaneously. In the tenth week, the baby squints. It swallows hiccups and has fingerprints. There's a lot of people in here, a lot of ladies that could attest to hiccups in the womb. And in the twelfth week, the baby responds to touch and begins to suck its thumb. That's just in the first trimester. The first trimester. When just about anywhere on this, in this country, abortion is on demand. An interesting statistic, and again, these are just statistics. Sometimes you can trust the source, sometimes you can't. But it was in a, a, a statistic about the new technology and this was a pro-life organization, they said that 95% of the women that they get to see, 
95% of the women that come in intending to abort that see an ultrasound change their mind. Because they see that the, the truth of the matter is it's a human being. It's life. In the fourth month, the ears are functioning and the baby can hear its mother's voice. Fourth month. Ladies, start talking to that baby. It can hear you. In the seventh month, it doesn't just hear you, it recognizes your voice. It recognizes mother's voice. The baby can see, it can hear, it can taste, and it can touch. And of course, at nine months, the baby generally weighs six to nine pounds. The heart pumps 300 gallons of blood a day and is fully capable of life outside the womb. It's amazing. Amazing. I always am amazed when I think about a sperm and an egg coming together and all of the millions and millions, billions of things that have to take place for that baby to be born. And we all know sometimes things go wrong. But more often than not, it works perfectly. And I believe wholeheartedly it doesn't work perfectly by random chance at all. The discussion, as I said, in America has pretty much changed. Some people will still argue when does life begin, but it's a pretty weak position to take. So what does it change to? It's changed to things that start trying to talk about quality versus life itself. For example, human life versus being a human being. Well, yes, we acknowledge it's a human life. Human cells have come together. But it's really not a human being yet. It's really not. Or they go to this idea of being a biological life versus personhood. Similar argument. They can't deny that it's life anymore because science and technology is showing us totally different. So they talk about it becoming something, as if somehow in this process, somewhere along the line, on that, on that timeline from conception to birth, somewhere along that line, there's a magic moment when it becomes life. And usually they try to base it on something to do with quality of life, something that 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 in their mind, that mass of cells, something happens that changes it, so now it has some sort of perceived value. The argument, is life something that is endowed? In other words, is life that's something that's given to that baby? Or is it something that's achieved somewhere along the way? Again, the problem with that line of thinking is when we look at that, they use these kinds of arguments. There's somewhere in this process where, where there's this unique quality that all of a sudden makes the baby viable outside the womb. Once it's born. Well, <clears throat> I don't know about all of you. Well, I do too. I think everybody in here realizes a newborn baby one hour old left alone isn't going to live very long. It needs help. It needs to be fed. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be cared for. It needs to be loved. So that argument 
doesn't really fly. It doesn't magically become viable the day it comes out of the womb. So that doesn't work in defining life very well. Some people say that it's only when they can, they're born and they can become um, human, quote-unquote, enough that they can develop sociable, social relationships. What does that mean? What that means is, until they're born, you really can't have a relationship with this baby. Would any women here like to disagree with that reality? It's a fallacy. It doesn't take long for most women to acknowledge they are madly in love with something that's inside them. This baby. Way, way before it's born. Sadly, I know a number of you ladies have had miscarriages. And I have seen you grieve. Social relationships are possible way before the baby comes out of the womb. That quality or that argument doesn't work. And really, if you're going to look at it, social relationships as a magical moment, it would really put a very small value on the life of some mentally disabled people. Are they of no value because they do not have the ability to build the relationships as we would define the relationships? These arguments don't work. It's difficult, if not impossible, and I would argue that it's probably impossible to find any quality that would perfectly distinguish the inherent quality of a child before and after birth. There isn't a magic moment. Well, there is. It's called conception. That is the magic moment when life begins. So the question is, what does the Bible say about abortion? This is an easy question for me to answer. Nothing. Nothing. Abortion. Jesus never talked about abortion. Does that make it not wrong? Does it make it not something to be abhorred? No. Is it because it wasn't important? That's why I didn't talk about it. No. I believe it's, most people would believe this is true from history. The reason it wasn't talked about in the Bible is Israel did not commit abortion. Israel did not sacrifice children to idols. Abortion, the sacrificing of children, was a pagan thing in biblical times. Some of you are maybe familiar with the, the idol called Moloch, that they would sacrifice and burn their children as a sacrifice to this idol. But God's people, the Jews, Israel, didn't do that. So there was no need for Jesus to, to address it. However, the Bible has lots and lots and lots of things to say about the value of life. And to me, that's the important thing as Christians that we understand. Because so many times... With, with good intentions, we have not been very good 
at debating or talking about this issue. Some Christians have been extremely condemning about anybody that has anything to do with an abortion. Some extremists have blew up abortion clinics or more murdered abortionists. None of that is godly. What does the Bible say about abortion? I want to talk first about this. Where does life come from? As Christians, what we need to do in everything, really, is ask ourselves, what is the biblical worldview? If I am a Christian, if I am a true Christian, I believe the Bible is the word of God. And if the Bible is the word of God, our worldview should come through the scriptures. Now, I realize if you're not a Christian and that's not your worldview, you think I'm crazy already, if you didn't earlier. Because the biblical worldview is not thought too highly of these days. And it's certainly not taught in our school systems, the biblical worldview. A biblical worldview, we are narrow-minded, intolerant, bigoted radicals in the eyes of the world. And to most of that, I would say thank you, but I would be misunderstood if I said that. The biblical worldview. So when I'm looking at this, I want to try to get us to just look at what does the Bible say and what would a biblical worldview of life be? A view of life that says that life has intrinsic value. What does that mean? If something has intrinsic value, that means it has value just because it is. Not because of anything that it can do or anything that it can be used to do. It just has intrinsic value. It's just because I am a human being, I have intrinsic value. That could sound egotistical, couldn't it? Why do I have intrinsic value? That's the important thing for us as Christians to understand. You know, this... This week has been called Sanctity of Life Week or Sanctity of Life Sunday. How many of us know what sanctity means? We hear it all the time, but they don't tell us much about it, do they? Sanctity of life. The word sanctity means holy or sacred or saintly or of ultimate importance. Life. From a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, life is holy. It is of ultimate importance. It's sacred. Why? First, I want us to look at the source of life. Most of us are familiar with Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says that God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. And then it goes on and talks about being fruitful and multiplying. And at the end of chapter 1 in verse 31, and it's like the picture is this. God now is surveying all of his creation. He did it on day one and said, hey, this is good. Day two, he said, hey, this is, this is good. Day three, day four, day five, said, this is good. 
But now after day six, when he had created man, the culmination of all of his creation, now he stands and looks at it and he says, this is very good. Until man was created by God and he breathed life into him, it was good. But now it's very good. Life. In verse 7 of chapter 2 in Genesis, it says, Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that meant, and then man became a living thing. Life is valuable because God gives it. God created life. He didn't look at Adam and say, man, by the time he gets up and does something of value, then he's a good thing. Matter of fact, we know he stood up and did some a bad thing. But he still loved Adam. He is created, we are created in the very image of God. He formed us, created us, breathed life to us without breath. Without oxygen, without air, life stops. And it tells us in Scripture, God breathed life into us. It's created by God and life is given to us. You're not an accident. People get pregnant and say, well, it was an accident. (laughs) Well, we could argue that point on a number of levels. It was not an accident. But the level that I'm concerned with is God knows. He's the one that gives life. He's the one that creates. You're not an accident. Every single one of us are born with a purpose and we have a destiny. And guess what? That purpose and destiny doesn't come when you come out of the birth canal. And we can look in Scripture over and over. We can see men in the Bible who God spoke things like this to before Samson was born, he speaks and says he's going to be a Nazarite from the very womb. He is going to begin the process of setting my people free from the Philistines. Purpose, destiny, while in the womb. Jeremiah, in verse 1, verse 5, love this verse. It's really simple. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I set you apart. God knows the life that's in the womb. He has already set you apart for a purpose and a destiny. And as we live it out, it becomes clearer and clearer what it is, but it's already there from conception. And you could look at many other characters in the Bible, but two that we're very familiar with would be John the Baptist and a guy named Jesus. Before they were ever born, they were told, what their destiny and purpose was going to be. Jesus, Mary, this baby that you're carrying in your womb by the Holy Spirit is coming for the salvation of my people. Elizabeth, this this John that you're carrying in your womb, he's going to be a radical He's going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to go out and preach repentance and make the way straight for the Lord. When did all that happen? Before they were ever born. 
It's there. God knows. He has a purpose and a plan, and it starts. Actually, it doesn't start at conception. I really did misspeak. It says, it's before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes, I knew you and had a plan for you. Life comes from God. It's a gift from God. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. A destiny and a plan. There are no accidents. Psalms 139. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but it's awesome. You should read the whole psalm. But I'm just going to read a couple verses. Three verses, I believe. Four verses. 13 through 16. In the last number of years, prenatal care has become a big deal, like it was a new concept. It started with God. He is the originator of prenatal care. Here you can read, starting in verse 13. For you created my innermost being. The psalmist writes, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made not formed, made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, the mother's womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Why do we have intrinsic value? Because God made us. God formed us. He weaved us together. He is the creator of life. How much does God know about the unborn child? Everything. God, we as humans, we we have a baby and we wonder, what's this child going to become? I wonder what this child's going to be like. I wonder what he's going to accomplish in life. I wonder if he's going to like me. (laughs) God already knows all of that. He knows everything. Why? Because he's the one that makes babies. He's the one. I mean, he uses men and women. We have a role to play. He created that role. But he's the one that makes them. It's him who gives life and creates life. An unborn child is just as much God's handiwork as a born child is. That's why life is so important. That's what gives it intrinsic value. It comes from God. He's the source of life. He he is the one that formed us and made us. And then there's a scripture, and again, I'm not going to spend much time on this. I'd love to talk about this for a long time. But in Exodus chapter 21, in my mind, God defines unborn life as life in this verse, these verses. This chapter, he's talking about children quite a bit. And in verse 21, he says, you know, if, if two men are fighting, hit a pregnant woman. And she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury. The, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. causes a premature birth. Big fine. Then it says, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life 
for life. If there's a serious injury, what it must mean death. Because if there's serious injury, you must take a life for a life. God puts as much value on the unborn life as he does on the born life. It doesn't matter if it's a moment after conception or you're 75 years old. God sees it as life and defines it as such. The biblical worldview of life and the value of life. God breathes life into every human being. He is the creator of life. He weaves us together. He defines the unborn life as life. And in my mind, therefore, life has intrinsic value just because it's life, because it's given from him. It's of value. It's of worth. Can you imagine the potential that was in those 60 million babies that had been aborted? What would our country look like with the accomplishments that may have occurred by those 60 million babies? So what does the church do about it? What do we, how do we react? How do we respond to abortion? I want to look at two people, two groups, two things, if you would. I want to look at the church, and then I want to look at God. The church, how should we respond? We need to pray. Now, that, so- that sounds like, well, that's pretty easy to say. You don't have to do anything. There is nothing more important than our prayer. We need to be praying about abortion in this nation. We need to be confessing it as sin in this nation. Abortion is sin. We need to love people, all people. We need to speak the truth mixed with grace. When God confronted sin in the scripture, he didn't condemn We need to confront these kinds of issues, but not condemn. It's not our job to condemn people who have been involved with abortion, had abortions, performed abortions. We speak the truth with grace, with love. We need to speak for the unborn. We need to support pregnancy programs. We need to support people who work with adoption. We need to make ourselves available if adoption possibilities present themselves. Whatever it takes to stand for and speak for the unborn lives that are risk. We need to support these different kinds of ministries that reach out to pregnant women, whether it be prenatal care or counseling, adoptive services. We as a church, I think most of you know, we, we support the Alpha Center out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We have for years and years and years. We now just recently added Bethany Christian Services to our missions, supporting these ministries that are on the front lines trying to protect the unborn, working with adoption, foster care, whatever it takes, putting feet to what we believe to be true. 
and that's all important, and we can do those things. If God calls you to be more proactive in a way, go for it. Don't, go, don't judge those who aren't as proactive as you, but be proactive with truth and grace and love wherever God calls you to be. Because if we really understand God's response to abortion, it should impact the way we think about it. Speaking to those in here that had an abortion, I know what I've said to you up to this point could be really disturbing. I hope you know my heart. Abortion is sin, like a litany of other sins. And the word of God is clear. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it. We are all sinners. Every single one of us are sinners. Every single one of us commits sins on a way too regular basis. But the moment we confess them to God and truly repent of those things, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. If you've been involved with an abortion in any way and you have confessed, it's you are forgiven. And with that forgiveness comes a freedom in Christ, knowing that you have been washed by the blood of Christ. That sin will never be used against you again, ever. There is forgiveness of sin. There is a healing of the woundedness so many women experience because of abortion. Read the data that's out there. Read of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of interviews that have been done and the, about the guilt and the shame and the emotional problems that these ladies are having because of an abortion. There is healing for all of that emotional pain in Christ. That's how God responds to abortion. There is deliverance from the demonic attacks of things like guilt or shame or condemnation, all provided for every single one of us as sinners through Christ. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. So many people would make those who have had abortions feel that way. That's not Christ. That's not Christ. And there's one other thing I want to share in getting ready to close about God's response to abortion. And I hope you get great comfort and joy in this response. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 19, David is really messed up, King David. He sent his men off to war, and he stayed home where he wasn't supposed to be. And he saw a woman named Bathsheba bathing and started to lust for her. And to make a long story short, he had an affair with her, and she got pregnant, and a son was born. And between that, David did a whole lot of other horrible things including murder. And now he has a son. And his son is sick. Really, really sick. And starting in verse 19, David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. 
Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Up till this point, his servants had seen David in sackcloth and ashes, praying and seeking God. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. And his servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And these are the most important words to me in this section of Scripture. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I believe this is evidence that there is a promise that there is going to be a reunion someday with every mother or father that knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is going to be a reunion with every child that's ever been aborted. There is going to be a reunion with your child, that little boy or that little girl. I believe that they are covered by a special grace of God and you will be reunited with them in heaven. A blessed, amazing reunion. Now, some of you might right away go and think, how could that be a blessed reunion? I'm going to just be filled with grief and regret and guilt and shame. Good news is that stuff doesn't exist in heaven. You're going to see your child one day if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If you're pro-choice, thanks for listening to me. I hope at least this maybe gives you cause to rethink a little bit, challenge you. I want you to know, however, whatever your position is when you leave this building, if you're still pro-choice, I still love you. God loves you. And you are welcome at Victory Christian Church always. If you're pro-life, I hope your position is even strengthened more as you look at a biblical view of what life really is. I hope you're challenged. If you came in undecided, I hope you're not still undecided. But if you are, pray, think about it, meditate on it, and see where you end up. And if you've been involved with an abortion or had an abortion, realize that all life is precious and all life is given as a gift from God and it has value in and of itself. It's an intrinsic value. And we understand that the termination of life is sin. But remember, God died for all sin. And every single person in this room was a sinner who's been saved by grace. Sins are forgiven. Remember that there is forgiveness, that there is healing of all of your emotional pain and there is deliverance from the attacks of the enemy who would try to come against you and bring up some sort of guilt and shame. And then remember, there's going to be a reunion someday. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge and confess as a nation we have seen many, many babies sacrificed at the altars, convenience, 
fear. And we thank you that you have held back the fullness of your wrath. And we pray, God, that you would change the hearts of those that are involved in the abortion industry. We pray, God, that you would help all of us to be able to share the truth in love with grace to those who may not know and understand. Help us to live our lives according to a biblical worldview, knowing that you love people. You love us. Lord, I pray for complete healing for any who have been directly involved with an abortion. Lord, and I thank you that there are promises and that there will one day be a reunion in heaven. God, I am so thankful that when we read the words of your scripture, we see the the way that you thought about young children. The esteem that you have for them. Knowing that they are safe in your presence. And Lord, I pray this morning that the words that I've shared would be heard, heard in the way that they're intended. Father, that somehow through my flesh, your compassion and your love and your mercy could be manifested. I pray that if there's anyone here who struggles with the reality of their involvement with abortion, God, that they would speak to someone. That the healing could be completed. And I do pray, Lord, as a nation that you would turn us away from our wickedness and our evil ways, that you would bring a spirit of repentance across this land, and God, that you would begin to heal. And God, I thank you and praise you that the abortion statistics are going down. But Lord, we acknowledge it's way too many. And Lord, I pray now as we go our separate way, you would go before us. I pray you would watch over us, protect us on the roads, other as we might travel. And God, I pray that you would give each one of us a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit as we think about the lives of the unborn, that you would reveal the kind of truth that you want us to know and understand. Father, give us the ability to discern the secular worldview versus the biblical worldview. And I pray this, Lord, that you would receive all the glory and honor in it. In Jesus' name, amen.